Um, I'm going to begin a new series today that we're going to begin for the next eight weeks. We're going to finish it on Easter. And it's a series called Waypoints. And we're going to be moving through the book of John in a very specific, um, very interesting sort of way, a very particular way. And so um, if you have your Bible with you this morning and the offering's already passed you, I just want you to open up your Bible to um, John chapter 2. And we're going to dive into John chapter 2 in just a few minutes. And while you're getting there and while you're kind of getting settled, I want to just talk a little bit about where we're headed and why we're headed there in this, in this series. And I want to explain some things about the book of John. Um, first, it's really important for all of us in the room to know there are four biographies of Jesus. They're typically referred to as the Gospels. And John's Gospel actually stands out and is very distinct and different from the other Gospels. The other biographies of Jesus are very different than the Gospel of John. And John covers the content of Jesus' life in a very unique way and through a very unique perspective. Um, it's less of a biography and it's more of a presentation of, of facts. And he presents these facts with the intention that when the reader is done reading these facts, when the reader has been presented with this information, the reader would then draw a conclusion after seeing these things. In fact, towards the end of his, his actual biography, um, he presents a thesis statement. And very unlike the other gospel writers, he actually says, I'm writing for this very specific reason. It's found in John chapter 20, verse 31. He summarizes his objective when he says this. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So towards the end of his biography, John says, there's two reasons I wrote this book. Reason number one is that by the time you've seen all of this information, by the time you've looked at all of this evidence, you might believe certain things about who Jesus is. And number two, that when you see those things and you begin to believe those things, that there would be a particular kind of life that you would now experience, that you would now live as a result of what you have seen. So there's two things that you would believe and that you would have this real and abundant life that Jesus came and promised to us. Interestingly enough, he saves this point for the end. John doesn't start with this. In our culture, we would have started with a thesis. We would have pronounced this is what we're trying to prove. And then we would have given a list of evidences of why this is what we should believe and why this is how it should impact your life. And there'd be a nice little summary conclusion. John doesn't actually do this. He actually saves it for the end. It's like he knows. He knows that by the time you get to this, after you see all of the different things that he's going to present to us, by the time you get to the end, you are going to have to make a decision about who Jesus is. You're going to have to make a decision about your life. You can't get to this end and not have seen what you've seen without making some sort of choice. You're going to have to understand God in a particular way when you get to this particular spot. And so he saves it for the end. So, so what does John tell us leading up to this? How does he get us to this particular thesis? How does he bring us to the end of this journey? That's actually where the book of John gets very, very interesting. In fact, um, this is one of my favorite things about the book of John. There's this fascinating detail in John's gospel. There are seven specific miracles. Now, seven is the number for perfection in the Jewish understanding. There's seven miracles of Jesus that are recorded in the book of John. Seven carefully selected miracles. It starts with the wedding at Cana. It ends with the resurrection of Lazarus. Those are the seven miracles of Jesus. Then there's an eighth miracle, and that's the resurrection of Jesus himself. We'll talk about that on Easter as we conclude the series. But there are these seven miracles that are recorded in the book of John performed by Jesus. Now, 
it's really critical for us to understand today that for someone like John, living in that time, in that space, coming from his background, miracles have a very specific meaning and purpose. Like, this is, this is good for us to hear and understand, because in our culture, we frequently over-personalize miracles because of our individualistic culture. We think miracles are somehow like wishes that are being granted to individuals to improve their situation in life. Like, I experienced a miracle, and now I am individually impacted by that. That's typically how we think about it. And yet, for the Jewish understanding, there were dimensions of miracles that went far beyond just some sort of personal impact. There was something more dynamic. Miracles had this deeper meaning in Hebrew spirituality. In fact, they weren't just called miracles. When you look at the Old Testament, they were actually referred to as signs. Miracles were signs. These things weren't just things happening to someone. They were pointing to something. They were moving things in a particular direction. And you start to see these themes that develop in the Old Testament when you look at miracles or when you look at signs. For example, um, there are signs performed in the Old Testament that are wildly miraculous. Oftentimes they're done through some sort of human servant. For example, Moses would be the great example of this, that um, God performs signs through Moses. During the Exodus, there were the plagues against Egypt. There's the crossing of the Red Sea. There's the water from the stone. These are very miraculous things that spoke to the validation of who Moses is, but also gave direction to the people of Israel, like, I'm taking you somewhere. I'm leading you somewhere, and you need to go where I'm leading you. So that's the purpose of signs. Now, you also see other signs, by the way. The Old Testament signs aren't all miraculous. In fact, this is sort of interesting, that the further you get away from the Exodus, and I'll, I'll talk about this in just a minute, the further you get away from the Exodus, the less miraculous the signs become. In fact, the frequency of the miraculous starts to wane as time goes on. Um, later on, um, there are signs that aren't miraculous at all. In fact, at one point, Isaiah, the prophet, his sign was that he walked naked uh, and barefoot for three years as a sign to the people of Egypt. Nothing miraculous about that, just sort of weird, if you ask me, right? Um, so there's miracles, and then there's signs, all of them pointing somewhere. Now, here's something really interesting. The, the the, the understanding we need to wrap our minds around is this, that, that signs authenticate the messenger and they point to, to who God is or where he's taking us. That's, that's sort of the idea behind signs. They give this validity. So, so here's what's fascinating. We have signs in the Old Testament that, that are miraculous and then they begin to wane. They, they become less miraculous. Then we open up the Gospel of John and John specifically selects seven signs of Jesus, and each of them is wildly miraculous. People haven't seen this for a very long time. I mean, the, the last time that people saw these kinds of miracles was when Moses was leading the people out of bondage and slavery, and God was establishing a new covenant with humanity. Could it be that with the revisiting of wildly miraculous works and signs, that God is once again leading people out of slavery and bondage and creating a radical new covenant with them. John is selecting these miracles. The miracles of Jesus are being highlighted for a particular reason. These are, these are waypoints that are guiding us in a particular direction. And they mean something. They point to something. They're leading us somewhere. So, so why does this matter to us? Um, I've been hiking lately. I just, like, my dog likes to go out, and I spend way too much time alone. So uh, I, I've been hiking, and, uh, and for those of you that don't know, I've been, my wife is actually coming to town today. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, and uh, she's moving down here next month, but uh, we haven't seen each other in, like, four weeks, so 
so there's days when I'm like, what am I going to do? And so the dog and I, we go on hikes. We went on a hike. Uh, here's a picture. We went on a hike here today. I, you know you're alone when you take pictures of your dog, right? Like, <laughs> there's a whole level of, like, lonely people. We're like, oh, my dog's so cute. Here we are on the trail. And I hate to admit this, there are more pictures like that one of here's my dog here and here's my dog there, right? So, so we go on this trail, and, and it's pretty self-explanatory. We're kind of moving along, and I don't really know the area, but I'm just kind of fumbling through. And, and a trail like this is pretty clear, right? You kind of know where you're headed. There's no, no place to go. And then we came around um, this corner, and there was this. So I had to get another picture of my dog, of course. But I came around, and there was this crazy crossing. And as I stood there, th this picture suddenly hit me, and I went, this is it. This is actually where a lot of us are as it relates to Jesus and the way of Jesus. Like at some point, we thought it was pretty clear, pretty self-explanatory. The path seemed pretty specific. But then at some point, because of things that people have said or things that people have taught, things that we've heard in churches, things that we've heard of outside of churches, things that we've done, things that we've discovered, things that we haven't done, whatever it is, there's a moment in time when all of a sudden the way of Jesus starts to look and feel like that, right? There's a point where you go, I kind of think Jesus is about this, but then what about this, and what about this, and what about this? And it becomes very unclear, how do I actually move into the way of Jesus and go the direction that he's calling me to go? That is where we encounter these waypoints. When John writes his gospel, he's saying, listen, I know there's going to be some ambiguity. I know at times you're going to get unclear about the way of Jesus. And this way you will know who Jesus is and what he's calling you into. What does Jesus really want this thing to look like? So he picks these seven miracles, and they show us about Jesus, and they show us where we're headed. So for the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at these seven, and then the eighth miracle on Easter. And, uh, and let's start today by looking at the first one. About 15 minutes ago, I told you to open up to John chapter 2, and now I'd like to dive into this. This is the first waypoint, and this is so critical because I believe it sets the stage for everything that's to come. So we're going to walk through this. We're going to talk about the implications. But first, we're just going to read together. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. I'm going to pause here for a moment. Let me explain a couple things. Jesus' mom and his disciples get invited to a wedding. Sounds like the beginning of a joke, right? It's not. They get invited to this wedding. And, and Jewish weddings during the first century were, were very different than, than weddings in, in 2020, 2019, whatever you experienced last year from a wedding. I want you to understand they're very different. Um, now, weddings can be complicated. My daughter got married two summers ago. Let me just tell you, weddings can be complicated, right? They can be expensive. They, they, getting the guest list together, all of those things, the venue, the food, are we actually going to feed all these people? Will they remember what they ate? All of those kinds of questions make weddings in our culture very complicated. But they are nothing compared to the weddings in the first century. And here's why. In the first century, a wedding would have been the merging of two families that had probably lived in close proximity to each other for a while. And now these two families are being joined together in a very unique union. And this would be celebrated for days on end. In fact, we tend to think about a wedding and we think about the ceremony. But for the people in the first century, it was as much about the celebration as it was about the ceremony. There was this bonding that would be happening between these families. Not only that, these families would invite the community to come join in this. All of their neighbors, all of their friends, thank goodness, those of us that are dads of daughters, Alex, you can thank goodness for this. Dads of daughters, we don't have to invite everybody to the wedding, right? 
They would invite everyone to the wedding, and there was this incredible social pressure that existed, so much so that it, depending on how that went, there might be financial or relational implications for years to come. So we read in this passage that there's no more wine, and this is a significant, significant issue. In a shame and honor culture, this meant great public shame. And Jesus' mother, she's obviously very concerned about how this might look, and she's going to do something about it, but I want you just to notice something. She doesn't run to the neighbors and check and see if they have wine. She doesn't go to the convenience store down the street. She doesn't go to Newburg. She goes to her son. She goes to Jesus. Like, I know somebody that I think can do something about this. And so she says, they have no more wine. And then verse 4, Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. <laughs> now, Let's just address the elephant in the room. <laughs> if I said this to my mom, <laughs> there would be a wooden spoon size bruise right about here. Right? Woman, <laughs> why are you messing with me? Right? Like, what in the world, Jesus? What are you, like, what, you know? Now, it's important for us to understand, translators have done a pretty poor job getting this from, from Greek into English. And... And the reality is that Jesus is really just turning and saying, Mom, like, why do you want me to do this? Why do you want me to do this? And he's not being disrespectful. I want to make sure that's clear. But then he says something you, you, you can't miss. He says, my hour has not come. Here's what's interesting about this. Every commentator, everybody you read agrees with this statement. When Jesus speaks of his hour coming or not coming, he's referring to his death. So then you scratch your head and you say, why in the world is Jesus talking about his death when he hasn't even performed a miracle yet? Well, that's exactly why. In Jesus' own humanity in this moment, he's not sure what the response will be. If I perform this miracle, the nature of this miracle, and you're going to understand more about it in just a few minutes, the nature of creating wine and making this happen in this moment is a sign, is a, is a, is a moment of significance. This could literally cause the kind of uproar that would cause them to crucify me. Jesus understands what he's about to do. And so he objects, my hour has not come. Like, why are you bringing me into this? And then we read, in my opinion, one of the funniest lines in the Bible. Because Jesus tells his mom... What does this have to do with me? And then verse 5, she says, do whatever he tells you to do. Literally, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. So I just picture this, that Jesus is objecting with his mom, and she just goes, yeah, yeah, whatever. Hey, servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And he's like, come on, mom, right? <laughs> do what your mother tells you to do. That's the lesson today, right? And then we keep reading, and this is, this is where John chapter 2 gets really, really interesting. Verse 6, it says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then after uh, the cheap wine first, and after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. Everyone brings out the cheap, the bad, the good stuff, and then they, you understand what's going on here, even though I can't say it. Get them drunk with the good stuff, then serve them the stuff that they don't know what they're drinking, right? That's the point of this, right? And then verse 11. 
What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, this is really important, and his disciples believed in him. So this waypoint, this sign, this miracle of turning water into wine actually points to several things, and I'm going to give you three of them. It reveals something about who Jesus isn't. It reveals something about who Jesus is, and it reveals something about how Jesus sees us. Those three things are what this reveals. And I just want to look at this first one, who Jesus isn't. And I want to go back to verse 6 because 99% of people read this passage and completely miss one of the most important details in all of the book of John. But first a question. If you have been at a wedding for multiple days on end and people have been drinking wine day after day after day and you run out of wine, what do you have everywhere other than drunk people? Somebody said it, you have empties, right? I mean, if this is today, you go out to the recycle bin, and there's a recycle bin full of wine bottles, right? So at this wedding, someplace, there was a recycle bin full of wineskins. Or there was empty wine barrels, wine casks, something. There was someplace, if you've had all of this wine, and now you've run out, someplace there are empties. And I want you to notice something about verse 6. Nearby stood Six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Six times 25 is a lot of party fuel, by the way. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and so they filled them to the brim. Notice this. Jesus didn't use the empties. He uses six Stone jars used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. This has massive ramifications. This is so significant. Let me me explain something. That, That during this particular time in Jewish history, there was a movement that had begun in which people thought, if we curb our behavior... If we jump through hoops and we obey rules and we follow regulations, then somehow we can coerce God out of heaven to be present with us again. See, see, for years, the people of Israel had lacked a sense of God's presence. Gone were the days when they worshipped God in the temple the way they used to. And now there's this deep sense of longing. So there was a group of people that said, maybe we could somehow manipulate God. And so we're going to have rules and rituals and all of these things. And we're going to cleanse ourselves because maybe if we got clean enough, then God would meet me, then God would bless me, then God would would be with me. And so these pots that are in this banquet hall, these are not just pots. They represented the efforts of the people to earn God's favor. They were ceremonial, ritualistic washing pots. And when Jesus turns that water into wine, he intentionally desecrates a religious icon and offends every religious person in the room. Their sensibilities immediately would have said, what's he doing with the water from the washing pots? This is a radical departure. Like, to miss this is to miss everything that Jesus is about. It is this incredible symbol of who he is. Because Jesus is not establishing another religion. He's opening this entirely new way for you and I to relate to God. That's what he's doing. By using the pots, Jesus is saying, listen, this is just a glimpse of what's to come. But you're going to stop your striving and your efforts and your attaining I am rendering these pots and every other form of religiosity useless in your lives. 
You don't, you don't jump through hoops to manipulate God. You don't, you don't obey rules to earn his favor, to get his attention. You don't, you don't focus on regulations. I'm showing you a new way. I'm showing you a new truth. I'm showing you a new life. That's what Jesus is doing. I mean, do we really believe, think about this, in the first century, I mean, if we, if we really believe what we believe, we believe there's a God in heaven who cares about humanity, that the story of, of the fall, if this giant narrative is true, if, do we really believe that at some point around the first century, that God in heaven looked at humanity with all of the world religions that existed at the time? Do we really believe he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my son into the world, and we're going to create another world religion for people to argue about. Is that really what God is doing? Or could it be that God is undoing everything that religion had sought to do in the hearts of humanity? Um, Jesus is showing us something completely, completely new. So, so who is Jesus? Who is he? Look at this last part in verse 11. John says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This was really important. When John says that the miracle revealed his glory, this is something the people had not experienced. This is so beautiful and so important. I'm not even sure we can fully comprehend all that this entails, but in Jesus, we encounter in him the intersection of God's love and his glory. Both of those things are happening in this moment. And, and I want to I just clarify this by talking about the wine, the significance of the wine at this wedding for just a moment. Why was wine so important? Well, um, by the way, it's more than just party fuel to the people of Israel, and that's why Jesus was nervous about what he was about to do. Um, we first start reading about the cultivation of vines and vineyards and, and the creation of wine shortly after the story of Noah in the Bible. And so um, that's pretty far back in human history, right? But wine begins to take on an important role symbolically in the life of God's people. Um, in fact, there are three elements, there are three items that become symbol of God's blessing or symbol of God's presence. And those three things are olive oil, grain, and wine. It's really interesting when you think about these. Um, olive oil, to have olive oil, you need to take the fruit from the tree and you need to press the oil out of it in order to have it. That takes a certain amount of time and effort and energy. Um, to, to have grain, it means you have to have land. It means you have to have time to sow seeds and then gather those crops together to harvest those things. These things are speaking to time, right? They're speaking to peace. They're speaking to ownership of land. For the people of Israel to have oil or them to have grain, it, it meant that there was a season for nomadic warring groups of people like them. It means you were in a season of rest, a season of blessing, a season of peacefulness. And then you add wine to this. For you to have wine, you need land. And you need time to nurture vines. And you need to collect the fruit. And you need to care for that fruit. And then you have to have time and space to allow that to mature. The, the existence of wine in a warring nomadic culture like theirs was this symbol like things are good. These are the good years. These are the years of peace and wholeness. Like this, this is when God's presence is with us. And so wine becomes synonymous with the presence and the blessing of God. When God is with us, it's like the wine and grain and olive oil years are upon us. 
In fact, when Joshua goes in to spy the promised land, long before he takes over for Moses, he comes back with a giant cluster of grapes. And they call the valley that they come from the valley of the clusters, basically saying this is where God has brought us because this is where God's present in this place. So over and over again, we see wine as a blessing, wine as a symbol of God's presence and his glory. Even in the temple, there's a sacrifice called the drink offering where they take the finest wine and they pour it out as a recognition of God's blessing and presence with his people. Then something happens. The people of Israel stray from God. And when you read the Old Testament, it's as if the glory of God departs from them. There's still occasional blessing, but the sense of God's presence, the sense of God's glory is now removed from his people. And eventually, as a nation, they crumble, they're conquered, they're taken into captivity. And then the prophets begin to describe a day or a time in which the wine would return. That there will be a season in which we will drink new wine. And they begin to point to a future when God's glory would return. And that day doesn't come. Year after year after year, they talk about the days when we used to have olive oil and grain and wine. And then there's this wedding at Cana. And there's this Messiah, this rabbi, Jesus, that shows up. And John says, this is where this whole thing begins. Do you see where this is pointing. When Jesus arrives at this wedding and turns the water into wine, this is the fulfillment of the new wine. We see God's love, certainly God's love. He's providing for this couple and, and this family in this moment. But we also see God's glory because God is now present. The symbol of the wine, and wine, by the way, that's better than the wine they served before. Symbolic, again, of what Jesus is doing. This wine is a symbol where God is saying, listen, I'm with you. My glory is upon you. This is the intersection of God's love and his glory. The glory of God is present among his people. God is with them. This is new wine for a new season. By the way, that new wine, it means that there's a renewed sense of God's presence. There's a renewed leadership of his spirit. There's a renewed season of shalom, of peace and wholeness. God's love and God's glory in the person of Jesus. And, and this has remarkable impact on us. So we know what Jesus isn't. We know what Jesus is. He's this intersection. But what does this actually mean for you and I? And, and he's offering us something that is infinitely better than religiosity. Are you with me on this? Three of you. That's awesome. Thank you. Some of you would just love religiosity. That's fine. Um, there's a church down the street for you. Um, Jesus is giving us more than hoops to jump through. Do you see this? He's, Jesus gives us more than just, oh, here's, you're going to clean yourself up. I'm a new way to cleanse yourself so you can keep doing all the old religious stuff. He's doing something radically new and different. It's, it's so much more than a list of, of rules and regulations that we keep to somehow manipulate God into, into blessing us. I'm going to close with, with this. Um, this first miracle of Jesus is, is one of two things for you, and, and most likely it's probably a combination of both. First of all, it is a confrontation of our religious tendencies. We're going to see this in this series as we look at the miracles of Jesus, but we have a habit of turning Jesus, the way of Jesus, into empty and oftentimes even abusive religion. 
we take the words of Jesus, the way of Jesus, and we just hold people captive in ways that Jesus never intended his words to be used. Our thinking, our behavior, our moralism in the church today, it's just another form of this sort of first century ritualism. And we behave, we do all these things sort of hoping like, well, God's going to be pleased and I'm going to get my way and this is all going to happen. So, so, so first of all, this miracle, it's a confrontation. For those of us that tend towards religiosity and moralism, Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't get it. There's something else. But secondly, it's also an invitation. Somewhere buried beneath about 2,000 years of church history, behind all sorts of layers of stained glass, there is a Jesus who is very different than what many of us have been led to believe. He is a wild Messiah. Jesus is a radical revolutionary. He is not establishing another religion. He is eradicating religion for humanity. And the cross does not stand before us condemning us, shaming us, making us feel guilty for who we are. The cross is liberating us. It's offering us freedom and grace. The cross of Christ marks the end of religion. And we are invited through Jesus into an entirely new and different way of relating to the God who created us. That's what he's doing. Let me say it this way. This is, this is kind of the final thing I want to mention. Through a non-religious gospel, we are being invited into the subversive spirituality of Jesus. And that's what's happening. The first sign, the first miracle, Jesus rips the curtain back and says, well, I guess you're all about to see who I really am. Bring me the ceremonial washing pots and I'll show you what I think of religion. This sign ultimately calls to us and asks the question, will you drink of self-righteousness and moralism? Will you just drink the water and just keep drinking the water of going, yep, I'm going to keep doing this and keep striving, keep doing it my way? Or will you drink the wine of God's grace and experience the beauty of his gospel? That's the question that this is begging us to answer. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? May you be men and women who see Jesus for who he really is. And may you experience his love and his glory. And may his presence not only be made known to you, but may his presence be made known through you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen.